modern server infrastructure usually runs in a virtualized environment. Virtual servers can exist inside of a container or inside of a virtual machine. Containers can also run on virtual machines. Kubernetes has allowed developers to manage their multiple containers, whether those containers are running in VMs or on bare metal, which means servers without VMs. As organizations expand their Kubernetes deployments, the overhead of those deployments is becoming a relevant concern. So-called cube sprawl can occur within organizations due to a lack of best practices on when new clusters should be spun up or spun down, and when those clusters should be shared by teams or shared by services. Paul Charkowski is a principal technologist with Pivotal. He joins the show to discuss virtualization, Kubernetes, and the state of the cloud-native ecosystem, as well as how Pivotal is thinking about all of these issues. For almost 20 years, techmeme.com has been a common site that people in Silicon Valley go to for news. You might have heard of TechMeme. You might go there multiple times a day to catch up on what you missed. Mark Zuckerberg has reportedly been somebody who reads TechMeme on a regular basis. But did you know that TechMeme has a podcast? It's called the TechMeme Ride Home. And it's similar to TechMeme as a written content source. TechMeme catches you up on the latest news in the world of tech. And the TechMeme Ride Home podcast does that every day at 5 p.m. Eastern in short 15 to 20 minute episodes. The TechMeme Ride Home podcast tells you what happened in tech while you head home after a long day. And it makes a great compliment to Software Engineering Daily, because most of our shows are pretty deep in the weeds, not really timely. We are pretty late to cover a lot of different topics. So if you're looking for a source of tech news that is up to date, search your podcast app for Tech Meme Ride Home, or just Ride Home, and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Paul Charkowski, you are a principal technologist at Pivotal. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to talk to you today about Kubernetes and containers and virtualization, as well as some of the blog posts that you've written. Let's start with just virtualization, broadly speaking. Describe the evolution of virtualization technology as you have experienced it in your career. Sure. So I remember the first time I came across virtualization was VMware, and I was working at an ISP back in Australia in would have been like the late 90s, I believe. And we kind of saw this thing called VMware. And like most people at the time, we saw it as a way to do like disposable test and development infrastructure. So, you know, we ran mail servers and web servers and stuff. And so we would run, I guess, test versions of those in VMware and just to, you know, not need so many servers. And that worked really well. Uh, and then at some point, we started to see it sort of push into more production use cases. You know, when VMware started to bring out the, you know, the multi-hypervisor management tooling and they brought out tooling to increase the resiliency by doing 
migrations from one host to another and stuff like that, we started to see ways that not only could it increase our ability to run more workloads per server, but also to add resiliency to what was at the time fairly fragile applications. And so we sort of all started running it in production, you know, using VMware, obviously stuff like KVM and other tooling. VirtualBox came out. VirtualBox was great because it sort of helped us do the same thing on our desktops so we could run multiple operating systems, which for people like myself who have insisted on running Linux on the desktop for a long time was great because we could have somewhere to run a Windows VM where we could run Outlook and our other sort of, you know, Windows-specific tooling. And then... We sort of had this cloud thing showed up and it kind of taught us that actually maybe the best place for the resilience is actually in our applications and the way we deploy our applications versus the infrastructure itself. Because as you push the resiliency into your application, you actually inherently make it more suitable for changing like the scale of it. So quickly deploying more, dealing with failures and stuff like that. And that sort of brought us to the cloud thing. And then we started to get cloud native. So, you know, we started to say, okay, now that we have this cloud thing, let's actually write our applications to take best advantage of being deployed to clouds. And then of course we got, we then started looking at containers. You know, obviously the purists would tell you containers have existed for longer than virtual machines on, you know, Solaris and BSD and stuff like that. But really until Docker came along, they weren't something that the average person could use. Indeed. You've given a great overview for reasons we might want to virtualize our technology in various ways. We can get security benefits, isolation benefits, continuous delivery benefits. If we're talking about virtualization, there is a, a distinction that you have drawn in, in some of your blog posts between soft tenancy and hard tenancy. Could you describe in more detail what those terms mean? Yeah. So I guess, first of all, tenancy is basically when more than one user, whether that's people from other companies or even people from inside the same company, want to use the same infrastructure or the same platform. And then the soft and hard tenancy aspect comes in based on how the resources are actually divided up amongst those users. So with hard tenancy, you usually have some sort of almost physical boundary. And so obviously physical machines with their own VLANs are a very hard tenancy. You know, they have their own network, they have their own physical machine. With VMs, you kind of emulate that same hard tenancy in virtual machines. So you get most of the same separation. But then as you slip into things like containers, you no longer have that physical barrier. So containers are really, especially Linux containers, are just uh, separations of workloads on the same kernel. And so yeah, there's always some form of opportunity to you know, get in through the kernel into another container. And there's less, it's less obvious how you can restrict a given container to a certain set of resources on the physical machine. So there's some security concerns and there's also some performance and you know, noisy neighbor type concerns that had been somewhat solved in VMs. And so now the question is like, what sort of tenancy do I need? And then when I figure out what sort of tenancy I need, then what's the best way to achieve that tenancy given the fact that I want to use containers or given the fact that I want to use VMs? And so you can sort of work your way back from there. 
just to emphasize the differences between containers and VMs, could you distinguish between their tenancy models? Explain to what degree is the tenancy of containers soft or hard, and, and the same question for VMs. You know, from, from VMs, you do have that physical separation. With the containers, Linux containers by themselves don't really have a good understanding of multiple users. You know, you, yes, there is some isolation, you know, using C groups and namespaces and stuff like that, but they're really more about separating their runtime environment from, from each other versus creating uh, a secure environment in which two workloads could run by, side by side in a highly secure way. And then when you look up the stack, say using Kubernetes introduces some extra tenancy options uh, like namespaces, but a lot of the actual underlying Kubernetes infrastructure tooling like the API server, the kubelet, etc don't really understand that tenancy. And so the kubelet, if it's given instructions, will just attempt to do what it's told versus actually validating that, you know, the the person has the right rights and access to do those things. And so above the API, Kubernetes has enacted some of that tenancy. So you do have role-based authentication, et cetera. But in the actual Kubernetes components themselves, that doesn't always reach all the way down. And so you see some weird things that you might not, might not expect. For example, you know, you, you can see, you can basically see every DNS. So DNS is a great example. When you create a, a pod and a service on Kubernetes, Kubernetes goes ahead and creates DNS for it. There, you can then learn about what's installed by, you know, looping over the DNS and seeing what's available. And you could even potentially poison the DNS and add your own pod to a given load balancer or to a DNS uh, A record and, you know, have, you know, potentially cause some traffic to be redirected to a, a, the wrong pod for, you know, either accidental or nefarious purposes. I'd like to now survey some aspects of the virtualization world, the Kubernetes world, the cloud world, and look at this issue of tenancy and different virtualization models from a variety of perspectives because to my mind that's a that's a good way of presenting this information in a way that's that's a little more accessible or will perhaps convince people this is why you should care about the tenancy models or at least this is a survey of how the tenancy models might impact your day-to-day work as a developer who is probably not building like a Kubernetes managed service. Probably if you're working with Kubernetes, you're implementing it at your company. So let's let's actually start there. You have a quote. If you are trying to develop a Kubernetes strategy, you have already failed. Now this is uh, highly disjoint from some of the marketing messages I have encountered. What's wrong with me trying to develop a Kubernetes strategy? Yeah, so I mean, I will admit there's definitely a little bit of clickbaitiness to that quote. But really what I was trying to get at is like Kubernetes is not a solution to a problem. So Kubernetes is a platform. And really when you're developing strategies at like the high level in a, in a business, you need to be focused on the problems that you have and solving those problems. And so you really want your, your uh, like you want Kubernetes maybe an implementation detail of that strategy 
but it shouldn't be the strategy itself. Uh, you think back a couple of years ago, there was kind of a fad of having an open stack strategy and, you know, a couple of large enterprises and large vendors actually had press releases about their, you know, billion dollar open stack strategy. If you look back at those, you'll see that uh, most of those companies either got very quiet about what they're doing with OpenStack or have sort of publicly said that you know, OpenStack wasn't what they wanted, didn't solve the problem that we're trying to solve. And that was because, you know, they, they're making these huge bets on this relatively unknown thing that they didn't have a great understanding of. So, you know, that's treating the, the technology as like an enterprise strategy. Whereas if you look at it as an implementation detail, you usually focus on a much smaller problem. And so you might be just focused on a particular business unit or a particular set of applications and you're making a much smaller bet and you kind of give yourself a little bit more leniency to fail and learn from those failures and re-implement and work your way through it and come up with something that is actually solving whatever problem you had versus, you know, that, well, we're just going to, install a giant Kubernetes cluster and magically all our problems will go away. I love this point so much because it's really easy to get caught up in, I, look, I need to migrate to Kubernetes. We just got to get this done. We got to move everything to Kubernetes. We got to move the legacy monolith into a microservices architecture, etc. And that may be right, depending on the business priorities. Ultimately, you as an engineer need to be aware of the business priorities. And if something is going on in the business that necessitates perhaps building out a new service, you may have to wait for your elaborate Kubernetes migration strategy. That's just the reality. And by the way, in the meantime, while you're building whatever new feature or tacking additional software onto your existing monolith, maybe quote-unquote serverless technology advances to a degree where now you would be developing a quote-unquote serverless strategy if if this was your mentality. And, you know, if, if the Kubernetes opportunity passes you by, maybe now you're spinning up something with serverless functions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're, we're kind of seeing that already with, you know, folks that went from having an OpenStack strategy never actually got a thing. So then they switched to having a Kubernetes strategy and they'll probably never have a thing before they're like, oh, now we need a serverless strategy. So I think that's definitely a, a, a concern. And so what we should be looking at is figuring out how we can get access to these platforms and these different abstraction layers without needing to make a large bet on them and without needing to have a multi-year process on figuring out how to operate it or how to, you know, figuring out every single best practice before you start utilizing it. So we need a way that we can start experimenting as developers, as operators, and as like uh, cohesive business units. We need to be able to start experimenting with these different abstraction layers and figuring out which ones are best for the types of workloads that we currently have and also the types of workloads and applications that we want to build you know, in the near future. And as we experiment, we're going to implement certain patterns perhaps incorrectly and we may only realize that they're incorrect in retrospect we may end up spinning up just one big kubernetes cluster and then later on realize that actually we should have spun up a bunch of smaller kubernetes clusters we may spin up a bunch of small kubernetes clusters and realize perhaps we only should have had two or three 
And yeah, absolutely. And I think you articulate this with the term cube sprawl. What is cube sprawl? Right. So cube sprawl is generally when you end up with like a bunch of containers running in Kubernetes and you don't really know what it all is. You're not really tracking it all. You know, we have the same with VM sprawl for virtual machines, right? Especially when we were, you know, I saw quite a few orgs just doing lots of unmanaged, say, KVM servers, and they would just spin up random VMs across random hypervisors. And there was like, you no longer knew what all was running where and how it was running. And so it's it's really important to have a reasonable, cohesive plan on like how you're going to, how you're going to move forward. Obviously at early stages, experimenting and learning is super important. So don't like block yourselves in that. But as you're experimenting and learning, say with Kubernetes, you should also have folks that are focused on like, what's our long-term management of this going to look like based on the things that we currently know. And, you know, as, as you kind of hinted at, you're going to get it wrong and you're going to get it wrong three, four, five times before you kind of figure out the best you know, way for, for you to use it in your own org. Definitely some organizations are going to function better with like one or two large clusters. Others are going to function better with, you know, 10, 20, you know, even a hundred clusters based on how that organization is structured and how it works. I feel like you're familiar with Conway's law, right? Is that the thing where an organization represents its software architecture or something like that? Yeah, basically the the your, your software will represent the communication structures inside of your organization. And I think your infrastructure kind of fits that same thing. So if you have lots of teams building up microservices, you know, doing the whole product-focused development, you may be better off with lots of clusters. Whereas if you have a large command and control, like, you know, developers write code and then operators run that code, sort of command and control type uh, culture, then it may make sense for you to have, you know, just one or two large Kubernetes clusters, right? And so it's important to acknowledge the type of organization you're working in. And then maybe some aspirational, like this is the culture and this is the company we want to be. And then figure out the best way to meet those needs with the infrastructure that you're going to get. To get ahead today, it helps if your organization is cloud native. The 2019 Velocity program in San Jose, June 10th through 13th, will cover everything from Kubernetes and site reliability engineering to observability and performance, to give you a comprehensive understanding of applications and services, and stay on top of the rapidly changing cloud landscape. I attended Velocity conferences early on in Software Engineering Daily, and it helped me grasp the times and the fast pace of change in today's times. There are twin revolutions in open source software and cloud, and to understand the nuances of these twin revolutions, Going to conferences can really help. At the Velocity program in San Jose, you can learn new skills, you can learn technologies for building and managing large-scale cloud-native systems, you can connect with peers to share insights and ideas. Join a community focused on sharing new strategies to manage, secure, and scale the fast and reliable systems that your organization depends on. 
You can get expert insights and essential training on critical topics like chaos engineering, cloud-native systems, emerging technologies, serverless, and much more. Listeners to Software Engineering Daily can get 20% off most passes to Velocity by using code SE20. You can go to velocityconf.com slash SE daily and use discount code SE20 on bronze, silver, and gold passes. O'Reilly Velocity Conferences are a great way to learn about new technologies. I can speak from personal experience on going to those conferences, and you can go too. It's San Jose, June 10th through 13th. Go to VelocityConf, that's C-O-N-F, Velocity, V-E-L-O-City, conf.com slash S-E daily, and use discount code S-E 20 to support the show and get 20% off. Thank you to O'Reilly. In a Kubernetes cluster, you typically have, at least I learned this from your blog post, something like four to six virtual machines at least. And if you're getting a bunch of Kubernetes clusters spun up, that will lead to you know, 4x to 6x VMs per Kubernetes cluster. Explain the VM count that is needed to run a cluster and and whether or not that's problematic. Yeah, so, I mean, you can run a single machine Kubernetes cluster, but for any number of reasons, which are hopefully obvious, that's not something you would want to do in production. And so you need to have resiliency for Kubernetes, Kubernetes itself, and also resiliency for your applications running in Kubernetes. So usually that means you have, say, three Kubernetes controllers or masters, and then you have three or more Kubernetes workers, which is your applications are going to run, right? Because you need your Kubernetes control plane to be able to deal with some failure in the system. And you need your applications to also be able to deal with some failures in the system. So generally speaking, you will have six kind of as a minimum so three for masters three for workers there is some argument where which is if you just have one master and you're able to repair and replace that master very quickly then maybe it's not as important to have three masters because if you have three masters obviously you need to figure out and learn how to use how to cluster etcd and have the the data store recover from failure and uh, expand to new systems whereas if you just have the one if you've got really good backups and restore methodologies, if you can restore your master in, you know, 10 minutes after failure, then maybe that's okay because all of your work, all of your workloads will continue to run even if your master nodes are, are down. So there's some argument over which is the right number for masters, but effectively six is kind of the minimum, three masters, three workers, but then you're probably not going to run enough workloads to make that worthwhile. So I, I think the the golden point, the point where you start to see the value is say around 10. So you might have the three masters and a six or seven worker nodes. And that gives you plenty of resources, assuming you're using large enough VMs to run a significant number of containers, but also have enough extra resources on those VMs to deal with failure. Because you know when a, when a node fails, Kubernetes will reschedule Kubernetes workloads onto other nodes if they have the spare resources to handle them. And so I think around 10 is is probably that good number. 
And then, you know, that to me, 10 or so, that's usually enough to handle like a, a business unit's applications. You know, if they've got a bunch of microservices, say, you know, six or seven microservices, each running a couple of replicas with, you know, maybe a database running in your cloud infrastructure somewhere, then, you know, I think that gives you plenty of resources for your applications to be scheduled, for them to be rescheduled if there's failures, to, for you to be able to upgrade Kubernetes from underneath them without having to like get a bunch more VMs so that you have enough to migrate them around. So yeah, I, in my experience, around 10 VMs tends to be the, the sweet spot. If you're going for the idea of having uh, multiple clusters versus you know one or two big cluster. And is this problematic at all? Is this too much resources that we have to devote to a cluster? As long as you have pretty good uh, utilization on those clusters, I don't, I don't think that's that's bad. I mean, yes, you do have kind of the the almost lost resources on your masters because you can't really schedule work to them. But that's possibly that's generally made up for by being able to have a little bit more systems run more containers running on the same VM or more applications running on the same VM. And also the value you get out of the orchestration and failure recovery generally makes it worth that overhead. Why is it important for us to consider more resource efficient ways that we could run Kubernetes workloads? Every enterprise is is interested in saving costs. So, you know, that's a big one. There's also obviously the environmental benefits of having less servers running to run uh, more infrastructure. But I would say less enterprises are as interested in that as just the sheer savings in having uh, less compute resources uh, running to handle the workloads that you currently have. And there's also some argument over the the number of employees you need, need to be working on a particular thing. So, you know, Often you used to talk about how many, you know, sysadmins you would need per server or whatever. And so if you're, you're as, as an enterprise, you still use that kind of metric, then, you know, having more applications deployed to each server or each piece of infrastructure, it's, you know, again, saving costs, uh, et cetera. Describe some of the ways that you see promise in potentially reducing the footprint of these Kubernetes sprawling workloads? So, I, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit to really looking at what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to run, and building out uh, Kubernetes clusters that are kind of very specific to that. And so when you have uh, smaller clusters and more of it, you can make them, okay, the app types of applications we're running are very CPU intensive, but not very memory intensive, or maybe they need GPUs. And so you can build out clusters with specific types of infrastructure and resources available to them for those applications without saying to, to make GPUs available to every single worker node across a giant cluster, even if you only have a small number of applications requiring that kind of infrastructure. And from the point of view of Pivotal, because Pivotal builds a managed Kubernetes service, if you could cut down on the resource consumption of a given Kubernetes cluster, 
that would lead to dramatic economic improvements for how much it would cost to run these workloads across your infrastructure. So it seems like this would be particularly relevant for a managed Kubernetes service. Yeah, so what Pivotal does is we actually do a managed Kubernetes service, but on your own infrastructure. And so we don't provide infrastructure. We work either on top of VMware in your data center or on top of any of the public clouds. So most of the, any cost savings would be like directly realized by the the customer using our product Pivotal Container Service, not by Pivotal ourselves. Can we talk more about the managed Kubernetes service world, because I think there's a little bit of variety among how these different managed Kubernetes services have been implemented across different providers. What are the subjective decisions that these different Kubernetes services are making? Yeah, so I think when you look at it from a higher level, most of the managed Kubernetes services are fairly equivalent. Obviously, some are more mature than others. You could argue that Google's has a higher maturity than, say, Azure's or Amazon's, purely because they've been running it for longer. And also, you know, they kind of invented the thing. When you dive deeper, you can see different cost structures and different types of resiliency. For example, on Google, they kind of give you the masters for free. And so you're only paying for the instances in which your applications are actually running. Whereas on Amazon, you pay for the masters themselves as well. Uh, So there's definitely some different uh, financial implications. And then say on on Google, they're starting to support Istio out of the box. So you can kind of do a checkbox and have extra systems installed into your cluster to help you do service mesh and stuff like that. And so there's definitely some uh, differences there. And then upgrade methodologies, they all upgrade in different ways and so you know obviously i think your first thing is like are you currently using a cloud and you know is that cloud's kubernetes offering good enough for you and then determine from there whether you need to look at the others based on the different types of features they support how they like to do upgrades and you know if they have easy ways to tie them back to your own infrastructure in your own data center if you're trying to do multi-cloud and that sort of thing do you see companies running multiple Kubernetes managed services? Yeah, we we definitely see that. Obviously, if they want to have workloads in different clouds, we see that. And then with our own product, we see kind of a combination of, you know, folks will use PKS in their own data center, and then they can choose if they want to use PKS on their cloud of choice, say Google, or if they want to use GKE and use Google's built-in Kubernetes clustering. And there's a number of decisions to be made there. You know, you could argue that it's going to be cheaper infrastructure-wise to run GKE on Google than it is to run Pivotal's Kubernetes product on Google. But you then don't necessarily have the exact same interface into your clusters. I mean, sure, you know, Kubernetes is Kubernetes, but there are definitely, you know, some leaky abstractions and, you know, the different platforms are going to have different versions of Kubernetes available to you. And so it may be more important for your business to make sure that you have the exact same operational tooling, the exact same software managing the cluster, whether it's on your own infrastructure or in the cloud, or you may be more interested in you know, the, the costs of it. So we kind of see both depending on the type of customer it is. 
And that, you know, goes across the different clouds as well as not just GCP and your own infrastructure. Revisiting the subject of virtualization, I want to go a little bit deeper on some ways that the footprint of these different Kubernetes clusters that are going to be running within an organization can become more efficient. And as we've kind of discussed, the efficiency gains could be realized at the level of a company that's operating their own Kubernetes cluster or a company that's adopting a managed Kubernetes service if the Kubernetes service takes on a different virtualization model that is more resource efficient. In any case, if we've got containers running on VMs and those VMs are running on some host operating system, the management system, as I understand it, is you have virtual machines that are managed on by a hypervisor that's running on this host operating system. And then we're often we're often running multiple containers on each of those VMs. Is that correct? Is that the correct model I should have in my head? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Is there a hypervisor system for managing the containers in a given VM? Well, really, Kubernetes is that hypervisor. So Kubernetes runs a tool called Kubelet on every single worker node. And that worker node basically is responsible for scheduling your different containers on your different workers. And so, yeah, in a way, Kubernetes is acting like the hypervisor. But one thing that's starting to show up is we're starting to see these you know, micro VM style hypervisors like uh, Kata containers, Firecracker, etc., where you actually have VMs, but they have the performance of containers. And so we start to see one container per VM. And so we're going back to you have a hypervisor that's running a bunch of VMs that are one-to-one mapped to containers. And when you do that, you suddenly start inheriting the security posture and the tenancy models of VMs versus containers. And that then means that you could potentially start running multiple tenants on the same hypervisor because you get those tenancy constructs versus if you're relying on Kubernetes and containers to provide that tenancy, you wouldn't necessarily allow those two users to run inside the same kernel. And so I think we're going to start to see in the public clouds, I I believe we'll start to see some benefits around them having not needing to have worker nodes that are specifically assigned to a, a particular user. And instead, every single time a user spins up a container, they'll get kind of that micro VM and it'll be running on a shared hypervisor. And so they get kind of most of the benefits of a container, but then also most of the benefits of a VM. And I think it'll be a while before we see that move down to like people running their own Kubernetes clusters because it's going to be a lot harder but also the, I think the efficiency savings won't be as pronounced when you're talking about tens or hundreds of containers, as opposed to when you think about all of the containers running across all of, you know, Google's Kubernetes engine, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands, I would imagine. And so at that scale, you're going to see a fairly substantial, uh, sorry, decrease in, you know, physical infrastructure required to handle that kind of workloads. I have heard that at Google, they run containers directly on the host running on Borg. 
and they don't use virtual machines. Why are we even bothering with this virtual machine layer? Why not just run a Kubernetes instance on each of our hosts? Yeah, so that that's that is an excellent question. And if you know, for, to start with, Google has a lot of strength and skills in in running and managing large fleets of physical machines to the point where they have a lot of custom hardware. And so their automation tooling is incredibly strong for dealing with physical machines. The rest of us don't necessarily have that level of automation out of the box with physical machines, but it's fairly easier, easy for us to get that kind of automation using some sort of virtual machine type system. And so there's kind of your first benefit. And then your second benefit is around, you know, if you want to have multiple clusters, you can run multiple clusters on a smaller number of physical machines if they're in VMs, because you get that tenancy model that makes it possible to run three or four different users' VMs on the same physical machine, where you might not want to have three or four different users' containers running on that same physical machine. So I think there's a fairly nuanced set of answers to that, and that's just a couple of a couple of things. Does this necessity or, or this adoption, this continued support of VMs in the broader industry, does it speak to maybe just kind of like wearing an additional seatbelt if you're if you're not Google? Because it provides this additional security benefit, this additional isolation benefit, and yeah, Google knows how to run containers directly on the hosts, but that's just a little harder to do while maintaining security and proper isolation. Is that is that kind of would you attribute it to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and if you look at how Google runs their customer workloads, right in in GCP, where you're getting instances from Google, they are they are you are getting your own VM. Now they do some weird like VM container trickery. But at the end of the day, you are getting your own fully isolated VM if you get a, a bare GCP instance. And then if you get a GKE, uh, Google Kubernetes Engine, a Kubernetes cluster, you are getting VM instances that are dedicated for your Kubernetes cluster. And so while they run a lot of their own infrastructure across one big flat set of containers using Borg, they don't necessarily expect their customers to do that same thing on their infrastructure. So I think that's a pretty good indication of, you know, if it's just me, I can use all the, all the machines and containers I want. If it's me and three or four of my closest friends or perhaps uh, not closest friends, perhaps we shouldn't just share that same set of infrastructure. Today's episode is sponsored by Datadog a cloud-scale monitoring service that provides comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments with over 250 integrations. Datadog unifies your metrics, your logs, and your distributed request traces in one platform so that you can investigate and troubleshoot issues across every layer of your stack. Use Datadog's rich, customizable dashboards and algorithmic alerts to ensure redundancy across multi-cloud deployments, and monitor cloud migrations in real time. Start a free trial today, and Datadog will send you a t-shirt. You can visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Datadog for more details. 
That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Datadog, and you will get a free t-shirt for trying out Datadog. Thanks to Datadog for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. We've done a show about GVisor that will air by the time of this this episode. GVisor is a tool for providing abstraction away from the underlying Linux kernel. And in that show, I I learned a little bit about the interface between containers and the kernel space and the fact that when when you're accessing kernel space, you make a syscall. You go from the user space, you make a syscall into the kernel space so that the underlying kernel infrastructure can do something for you that's useful, that has to do with some lower-level resources. One problem is that there's 300-something syscalls, and most of them are unnecessary, perhaps, for a lot of the workloads that we have, just you know, in, if we're talking about cloud infrastructure. But even though they may not be that useful to us, you know, they, they do present a security surface area. So with GVisor, you have this layer that... I guess, negates a lot of those syscalls or just kind of makes them into null operations so that you have a lower set of security concerns. I don't know how closely you've, you've looked at GVisor, but does it seem like a perhaps a, a solution that might eventually get us to a place where the more general enterprise could run just on the containers on hosts? Yeah, potentially. So I don't know a ton about GVisor, but my understanding is that they effectively provide like a syscall translator that kind of collects your syscalls and then actions them through a separate system versus you talking directly to the kernel via those syscalls. And so I would imagine uh, there is some overhead there and I wouldn't think it would be any more or less overhead than say using something like uh, Carter containers or one of the other micro VMs. And so I think the general use case for that sort of thing will probably be more at the micro VM level because it's a much easier thing for people to know, run and understand because it does kind of follow that same VMs running and hypervisor model that people are used to. So I think maybe at Google scale with Google level sophistication, GVisor might be the right solution there. But I think for most people, something like Carter containers or one of the other micro VM platforms is probably going to be more where we look at for the general enterprise and general users. When we're talking about these lighter VMs, like the Kata containers, what are we subtracting from the virtual machine that makes it take up less space? Yeah, that, that, is, that is a good question. I can probably answer some of it, but I don't think I have all the knowledge to give you a really good answer. Okay, okay, no problem. I think, you know, for some things like, you know, in a traditional VM, you have... You're emulating floppy disks and you're emulating USB and you're emulating CD-ROM drives and all these things that when you want to just run like one single application, you don't need. And so I think, you know, in a way, the micro VMs are just cutting out all of that extra nonsense, which is, you know, probably going to give you some performance benefits. It's definitely going to give you some security benefits. Like if there's a a vulnerability in like the floppy disk emulation layer. Well, if you don't have an, a floppy disk emulation layer, then that, you know, that the ability to try and hack your way through that, it just goes away. I think that's where a lot of the performance improvements uh, come from. Just the fact that 
all of these subsystems that you don't actually need are just just go away and you don't actually even have access to them. I'd like to to zoom out a little bit because I feel like we've talked in some detail about the the different uh, future alternatives for running uh, Kubernetes workloads and container workloads. So I'd like to I'd like to change the topic just to to more generally what is going on in the Kubernetes slash cloud world. And I'd like to start with service mesh. So you've already given kind of the perspective on the Kubernetes strategy thing perhaps being a mistake. Is it a mistake to try to develop a service mesh strategy? Yeah, I think it's kind of in the same category of mistakes. Not everyone has a service mesh problem that needs to be solved. And if you're just learning how to use Kubernetes, adding in all this extra stuff you need to learn as on top of it isn't necessarily the way to go. So I always recommend that people just start with fairly basic Kubernetes and figure out how to operationalize it and how to run applications on it. And then as they start to hit problems that are starting to look a little bit like problems that a service mesh might solve, then start looking down the service mesh way of doing things. But I also recommend that folks look at what languages they're using and see if the value they're getting out of a service mesh is available like directly in the language itself. For example, Spring, which is a a Java thing that uh, Pivotal works on, has a lot of things that do service meshy things, like they handle circuit breaking, they do service discovery, they do config servers, they do gateways, all directly in the native Spring interfaces. And so you don't need some external service to expose those to you, which, you know, if you can do something directly in your language versus throwing that control out to something else, it's generally going to be more resilient and more suitable for your needs. So I think it's one of those things where everyone involved in running your software from the applications to the operators, to the architects really need to understand the, like back to what you said earlier, you need to understand the business and the business goals and the full like end to end value stream of delivering software. And once you know that you can start to make really good intelligent decisions around what you need out of a platform what you need out of the languages you're using and how you're going to deploy those things. If a pivotal customer were to come to you and I, I don't, I don't know if you how much interaction directly with customers you have and said, look, I don't care what you're telling me. I want a service mesh and I want it now. Does pivotal have like a recommended mesh to go with? Like when you're watching this battle of the different service mesh providers play out, what does that lead you to uh, recommending? Yeah, I mean, I think the main player in the service mesh is is Istio. And there are certainly some others, and there are definitely some arguments about Istio being very heavy. I've seen some folks talk about, you know, the Istio sidecars that need to be installed in every pod costing you, you know, maybe 300 meg of memory per container or per pod. And so certainly there can be some, you know, that can add up if you're running thousands of applications, thousands of pods. So there's definitely some folks talking about more resource efficient options. But I think right now the only viable option is Istio and really? you know Yeah. I mean and again I'm not a service mesh expert, but 
certainly all the conversations we have with customers that are interested in service mesh are all Istio focused. And that I think that's probably because they're bl- Istio is kind of blessed by Kubernetes in a way, you know. You mean blessed by Google? Well, sorry, yes. Very, that's a very, very important distinction. It is blessed by Google. And if Google does it, it must be good for all of us, right? See, this is something that's like kind of irritates me a little bit. Like, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be irritated. Maybe irritating is the wrong word, but it's this self-fulfilling prophecy thing where, okay, yeah, Istio is kind of the way to go because like Google's going to put all the resources into it and they're going to kind of, you know, tilt the direction of the CNCF and the direction of the Kubernetes community and like, cool, all right, we'll have Istio and it'll be like the best service mesh probably because the community will marshal around it. And like, that's great. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But it's kind of weird, right? Because like, who's using it in production? Not as many people as Linkerd, as far as I can tell from talking to people. Like, I believe Monzo Bank is using Linkerd in production. So it's just, I don't know, man, it's, do you feel that way too? Like, you know what I'm talking about? yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Generally, all the cool new shiny things we're talking about are not the things that people are actually running and using because there's so many downsides with coming with with running the cool shiny thing, especially when it's quite heavy. Whereas if you've got something that like tightly focuses on a particular problem you want to solve, well, just use that thing. So, you know, definitely I, I, I hear what you're saying and I agree. I think where Istio starts to become interesting is when you look at that next level up abstraction of Knative, where it's, you know, Knative is a new thing on top of Kubernetes and some of the things it needs to do what it does provided by Istio. And so if you look at it as, you know, the next abstraction layer up the platform stack, where you're not necessarily dealing directly with Istio, Istio is now an implementation detail of your platform instead of becoming a thing that you have to deal with and run on top of your platform, then I think it's a lot. It's a little bit easier to swallow. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that makes it easier for me to swallow is, from what I can tell, Envoy is a legitimately good piece of technology and it's just was, you know, they were like, well, this is like a really promising sidecar thing and this fits into the kind of open source vision for the world that people actually want pretty well, whatever, mm-hmm. let's build a service mesh around it. And I don't quite remember what the Linkerd sidecar model is, but perhaps, you know, it's maybe it's not a technology that's as flexible as Envoy. I guess maybe that's the architectural point I need to, to dive deeper in before I pass judgment on anyone. Right. Yeah, I agree. You know, Envoy on its own is, is, is brilliant. It makes for an excellent ingress controller. It makes for an excellent you know, proxy system, but when you tie it into Istio, Istio's like Envoy is only a like one component of Istio, and there's all sorts of other stuff going on to provide, you know, circuit breakers and TLS between all of your applications and other stuff. And so, you know, that's where Envoy in itself, brilliant. I, and there's a lot of folks using Envoy right now in production for a number of different use cases. Whereas- sure, Lyft. All exactly lift, whereas all combined with the rest of Istio, you know, most people don't have yeah. all the problems needed to be solved with Istio. So why inherit all of the things you need to do to run Istio? Yeah, just to solve, you know, two of the ten problems that it it it, it tries to solve yes. for yourselves. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a little bit of a hangover 
type of situation from the container orchestration wars. It's like, all right, container orchestration wars ended. We can all admit Google just wins every battle. Like, let's just concede everything to Google right now. Let's all marshal behind Google. Let's just do it. Like, because right. I want better infrastructure. I want to stop worrying about this stuff. Right. Absolutely. And I like Google. I, you know, generally, I like Gmail. Okay. One last topic that you're an expert on because you're at Pivotal. And we have seen this. Speaking of Google, like Google kind of basically highlighted this this Anthos thing, like the platform where the service integrators connect with big enterprises that need service integrators. I think this is kind of painting a picture of a future where big enterprises are going to need more and more help with their software. How do you think that relationship between a systems integrator like a Pivotal I think Pivotal is an excellent systems integrator when it wants to be a systems integrator. It can also build excellent software. Tell me what the future relationship between systems integrators and enterprises is. Yeah, I think the relationship between them is is important. It's going to get even more important. And I think what we're seeing is Pivotal now is more of a platform integrator than we are a systems integrator. So we help provide the different platforms that an enterprise might need. And then we use systems integrators and other folks to then help tie in the rest of it into some sort of easy to plug in marketplace or uh, whatever you might call it. So that, you know, the systems integrators writes the, the software or helps build the software to run on our platform. And then we turn it into something that's able to be consumable in a marketplace type scenario so that a user of our platform can say, oh, we need this other thing as a middleware or as a database layer or as something else. And, you know, the platform, whether it's Kubernetes or whether it's uh, Cloud Foundry, works with that marketplace to get those systems deployed from the systems integrator. Again, whether it's running on some other infrastructure or whether it's running inside your own Kubernetes cluster and just provide the integration points of, you know, a, a URL, a username and a password or an API key or whatever else. So you kind of get that, you know, everything as a service type way of working where as a application deployer, the only thing you really need to care about is your own application and you allow the platform and the service broker and the marketplace to provide all of the other pieces you need to make your application run, whether it's databases, search, message queues, Kafka, any of those kinds of things. Okay. Well, Paul Tarkowski, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. GoCD is a continuous delivery tool created by ThoughtWorks. It's open source, it's free to use, and GoCD has all the features that you need for continuous delivery. You can model your deployment pipelines without installing any plugins. You can use the value stream map to visualize your end-to-end workflow. And if you use Kubernetes, GoCD is a natural fit to add continuous delivery to your cloud-native project. With GoCD on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow, you let GoCD provision and scale your infrastructure on the fly, and GoCD agents use Kubernetes to scale as needed. Check out gocd.org slash sedaily and learn how you can get started. GoCD was built with the learnings of the ThoughtWorks engineering team, and they have talked in such detail about building the product in previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily 
ThoughtWorks was very early to the continuous delivery trend, and they know about continuous delivery as much as almost anybody in the industry. It's great to always see continued progress on GoCD with new features like Kubernetes integrations, so you know that you're investing in a continuous delivery tool that is built for the long term. You can check it out yourself at gocd.org slash se daily. Wow! 